And take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Philippians chapter 3 this morning, would you please? Philippians chapter 3. Did you know that many people live under the illusion that all good people go to heaven? Maybe as you look back at your life, you realize that was you at some point, or maybe... Maybe even now you're, you're saying, what? <laughs> that's, are you going to tell me that's not true? Some assume that if you just live a good enough life, then God will have to let you into his heaven someday. And of course, we are so good at establishing and developing our own standard of goodness, Right? Charles Spurgeon used to share an illustration pointing out the weakness of this way of thinking. I just love this little story. Follow along. Let me just read this to you. It's a, it's a great little story. A, a ship on her way to Australia met with a very terrible storm and sprung a leak. As evils seldom come alone, a little while after, another tempest assailed her. There happened to be a gentleman on board of the most nervous temperament whose garrulous tongue and important air were calculated to alarm all the passengers. When the storm came on, the captain, who knew what mischief may be done by a suspicious and talkative individual, managed to get near him with a view to rendering him quiet. The gentleman addressing the captain said in a tone of alarm, What an awful storm! I'm afraid we shall go to the bottom, for I hear the leak is very bad." Well, said the captain, as you seem to know it, and perhaps the others do not, you had better not mention it to to anyone, lest you should frighten the passengers or dispirit my men. Perhaps, as it is a very bad case, and you would lend us your valuable help, and then we may possibly get through it, would you have the goodness to stand here and hold hard on this rope and pray, do not leave it, but pull as hard as ever, And do so as long as you can till I tell you to let go. So our friend clenched his teeth, put his feet firmly down, and kept on holding this rope with all his might till he earnestly wished for a substitute. The storm abated, the ship was safe, and our friend was released from his rope holding. He expected a deputation would bring him the thanks of all the passengers But they were evidently unconscious of his merits, for it is too often the case that we forget our greatest benefactors. Even the captain did not seem very grateful, so our hero ventured in a roundabout style to hint that such valuable services as his, having saved the vessel, ought to be rewarded at least with some few words of acknowledgement. When he was shocked to hear the captain say, "'What, sir?' Do you think you saved the vessel? Why, I gave you that rope to hold to, to hold to keep you engaged that you might not be in such a feverish state of alarm. Says Spurgeon, the self-righteous may here see how much they contribute to their own salvation apart from Christ. They think they can certainly save themselves, and there they stand, holding the rope with their clenched teeth and their feet tightly fixed. 
while they are really doing no more than our officious friend who was thus befooled. If ever you get to heaven, you will find that everything you did towards your own salvation apart from the Lord Jesus was about as useful as holding the rope, that in fact the safety of the soul lies somewhere else and not in you, and that what is wanted with you is just to get out of the way and let Christ come in and magnify his grace. As we continue our study in Philippians 3 this morning, we're going to see that this is true. That no matter how good you try to be, no matter what good you do, It's never enough to earn your salvation. It is Christ alone who is sufficient to save. It is Christ alone who is able to save you from your sins and to secure for you eternal life. And that is what Paul will show us if we will pay attention and we will see it. He will show us by way of his own testimony. So let's look together at Philippians 3. And though we're going to be looking at verses 4 through 8 today, I want you to follow along as I begin reading from the English Standard Version at verse 1. Let's begin our reading in verse 1 of Philippians 3. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews as to the law, a Pharisee as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Do you notice the word count in the text? Do you know how to count? This morning, we're going to be looking at an example from the life of Paul that demonstrates that he knew how to count. He knew how to count when it came to counting issues that really mattered. When it came to his relationship with Christ, he knew what to count as loss, and he knew what counted as gain. And what Paul is showing us here is that he had learned that confidence in the flesh counts as loss. But confidence in Christ counts as gain. So let's note this first. Note that Paul makes it clear that confidence in the flesh counts as loss. He makes that very clear beginning in verse 4. Last week we saw that true believers in and followers of Jesus Christ 
put no confidence in the flesh. We heard it again this morning as I just read verse 3 just a moment ago. And Paul goes on here in verses 4 through 8 to show how if anyone thinks he could have confidence in the flesh, he had even more reason for confidence in the flesh. He would have definitely qualified. Look again at verse 4. After just saying in verse 3 that believers in Christ, those who are followers of Christ, put no confidence in the flesh, he says here in verse 4, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. So Paul is saying, he, well, he ought to be able to measure up and even more to anyone else who thinks they have reason for confidence in the flesh. Look at my life, says Paul, and you'll find someone who has reason for confidence in the flesh if that's where our confidence is to be found. And so he goes on to list his impressive credentials, and the first few credentials he shares really have nothing to do with his own effort. But these were things he inherited by birth. He says in verse 5, look at verse 5 again, he says that he was circumcised on the eighth day. And his point is that he wasn't someone who converted to Judaism later in life. No, he was born into a Jewish family, a family that observed the law, followed the instruction given in the law, which we find in Leviticus 12.3, to circumcise a newborn male child on the eighth day. His family held to the law. Paul also points out that he was of the people of Israel. In other words, he could look at his family tree, he could go to the genealogy website, right? He could look at his family tree and go all the way back to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And then he mentions that he is from the tribe of Benjamin. About this, Warren Wearsby points out, the Judaizers would understand Paul's reference to the tribe of Benjamin because Benjamin and Joseph were Jacob's favorite sons. They were born to Rachel, Jacob's favorite wife. Israel's first king came from Benjamin, and this little tribe was faithful to David during the rebellion under Absalom. Paul's human heritage was something to be proud of. When measured by this standard, he passed with flying colors. I think it's kind of like how some people in the United States can trace their lineage all the way back to the Mayflower. And those who do, do so with great pride. They can claim that their ancestors arrived on the Mayflower. They're often very proud of their heritage. Paul had an ancestral line that he could have been proud of. Many Jews would have been proud of the ancestral line of Paul. And then Paul mentions that he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He goes even further. He's likely referring to having both a Jewish mother and a Jewish father. He wasn't of mixed ancestry. He was clearly Jewish. By birth, 100% Jewish. And these credentials that Paul lists first are all things over which he had no control. These were things that were his by birth. They were a result of the family in which he was born. But Paul doesn't stop there. He goes on to list some impressive fleshly credentials, some impressive things he had accomplished in and of himself that he had achieved on his own. 
Note at the end of verse 5 that he says, as to the law. What was he? As to the law, he was a Pharisee. Now, in our day, we don't use that word, do we? In our day, if we were to use that word, we kind of cringe. We think of that word in terms of hypocrisy. And yet in Paul's day, things were different. As John MacArthur says, to be a Pharisee was to be a member of an elite, influential, and highly respected group of men who fastidiously lived to know, interpret, guard, and obey the law. So Paul could have been proud that he was a Pharisee. And then in verse 6, Paul says, as to zeal, he was a persecutor of the church. He was enthusiastic. He was devoted to his cause, to say the least, if you know Paul's history. And the Bible leaves no question about the passion in his persecution of the church. Acts 8 3 tells us of Paul before his conversion. He was called Saul then, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. He was sold out. It's clear that Paul was devoted to his Judaism, going above and beyond in his opposition to Christianity. And the final credential that Paul mentions is his righteousness under the law. To which it says, he says, he was blameless. I mean, get that. To the law, blameless. Now that's impressive, isn't it? He thoroughly followed the Mosaic law. So anyone could look at Paul's life and see that outwardly he appeared to be blameless in his dedication to the law. A fine, upstanding citizen, to say the least. So just think of it. If salvation depended on having a good upbringing, that was Paul. If salvation depended on being religious, that was Paul. If salvation depended on being sincere, that was Paul. And being a good rule keeper, Paul nailed it. Paul qualified, but I want you to note here that he is very quick to point out in verse 7 that the qualities that would have seemed to put him in such good standing in the eyes of people in the world, he had learned to count as loss for the sake of following Christ. All the things that he had previously been counting on to put him in good standing with God, he now saw clearly. Those were a waste. Those were counted as a lost. What he's saying here is that confidence in the flesh, confidence in anything that you can do in and of yourself, counts as lost. It is a waste. Now, if you were to sit down and to figure out your net worth, you would make a list of your assets and your liabilities. And when Paul looked at the assets and liabilities of his life, he understood that all of the things that he had previously counted on as assets in his life 
as gain in his life that would put him in good standing with God. All of those things were in fact counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. The things that he had done in the flesh didn't count. They didn't matter. What did matter was his standing with Christ and what Christ had done. I wonder if you look at your life, what kinds of things might you be counting on in the flesh to gain a good standing before God? Even those of us who would say, I have trusted in the Lord Jesus as my Savior, and yet sometimes our lives show that we're kind of putting our faith and trust in other things. We're, we're thinking that if I do this thing, God will approve and bless me in this way. And that is not how God works. Over the decades, we've seen many in our own family enter vocational ministry. So I wonder if you could imagine with me for a moment if one of my own children were to think, wow, my great-grandfather was a pastor. My grandfather is a pastor. Several of my uncles are pastors. Several of my cousins are either in pastoral ministry or in missions work or in some form of Christian ministry. I must be okay. What would you tell my child? I hope you tell them the truth, that they're not okay based on those qualifications. You think they're going to impress God with their heritage? Of course not. None of that counts. You may have had the godliest mother, the godliest grandmother in the world, the godliest uncle. I can't tell you how many times I've had people tell me, oh, my uncle was a Baptist minister kind of waiting, like, oh, that must make you okay then. You think that we're going to impress God with our heritage? With those who have gone before us? No, what God is looking at is our hearts. He's looking at us. And He calls us to put our faith and trust not in ourselves and not in our heritage or our godly mother or grandmother or our Baptist minister uncle. Growing up, your family may have been in church every Sunday. I can remember two times in my growing up years that we weren't in church. One was after we had moved and spent all day moving and we couldn't find our Sunday clothes. And our, I, I'm surprised by this, but my parents wouldn't go to church without their Sunday best. So we went in the evening that day because by then we had found our good clothes. It doesn't mean anything. If I'm resting on that for approval by God, don't hear me wrong. I think being in church is a good thing. I think it is a necessary thing. I think sitting and listening to the gospel proclaimed is an absolute necessity in the Christian life. But if that's what you're resting, you're standing with God in, that is a faulty understanding of how God works. Maybe you take pride in your church membership. I'm a church member. I've been a member for decades. Maybe you're faithful in attending church or reading your Bible or prayer. Maybe you're resting hope on the fact that you give every time the offering is taken. Maybe you look at your life and you think, I give 
to church. I give to missions. I've got to be okay with God. God must approve of me. Maybe you could look at your life like Paul did and say, I've got a pretty impressive background. I've lived a pretty honest life. Maybe you're able to say things like that about your life. But you need to understand, like Paul did, that confidence in the flesh only counts as loss. Placing your confidence in anything other than Jesus Christ is loss. But Paul goes on here. He doesn't stop. He goes on to to, to make it clear to us that confidence in Christ counts as gain. There is something you can put your confidence in that counts as loss, but there is someone greater in whom you put your trust, and that confidence counts as gain. Look again at verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. So Paul makes it very clear that he understands that his heritage and his background counted only as loss. And he goes even further here in verse 8 to say, I count everything, everything as loss because of the surpassing worth. There's something much more worthy of your confidence. That is the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, says Paul. And what's of value to Paul and what's of value to everyone who wishes to have peace with God, Paul says, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. We can hear why this is so important. You might think, why is this important? This is so important. John chapter 17 and verse 3. Listen. You've likely heard this many times before. Listen to it again very carefully. And this is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is eternal life. This is forgiveness of sins. This is being redeemed from your sins. This is eternal life that they know you, God, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent to be the sacrifice for sins. So we need to understand here Knowledge of God and of Christ is not simply knowing about Him. Having your parents take you to church your whole growing up life. It's not knowing about Jesus that saves you. It's not knowing about God that makes you right with Him. It's believing in Him. It's believing in the Son. It's believing in what the Lord Jesus Christ has accomplished by dying on the cross by rising from the dead for your justification. 
Knowing Jesus Christ your Lord. Faith in Christ. Think of that. That's what that means. Knowing Jesus Christ your Lord is faith in Christ. It is how you inherit eternal life. So this is vitally important. Knowing Jesus is vitally important. Knowing Jesus, faith in Him only, is the only way to heaven. And yes, that's not politically correct in our culture, but that's the only truth there is. And that's what we must share as a church. And as individuals, that's what we must stake our hope in. It's only through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ that you are made right with God. It's only through a relationship with Jesus Christ, your faith in Him, your faith in what He has accomplished for you by taking the punishment for your sins. It is only your faith in Christ that gives you the privilege of eternal life with Him. What we're hearing Paul tell the Philippian believers and believers in every age is that faith in Christ alone is gain. We cannot work to earn our salvation. Paul was a model Jew. You can look at his testimony. You can look at his background, his upbringing, his education, his experience, his passion before Christ. Paul was a model Jew, but it wasn't until Jesus confronted him on the road to Damascus that he was made right with God through faith in Jesus Christ. His own efforts were worthless and futile. He says in verse 8, For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, but it was worth it, and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Everything before and outside of Christ Paul counted as rubbish. In other words, what he was talking about was things such as scraps thrown to the dogs, or even worse, dung. He says it's rubbish. All of that without Christ. Paul was counting all things as a waste compared to the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus his Lord. Knowing Christ as Lord far surpasses any human efforts or achievements. You've heard in the texts leading up to this text today, you've heard me say, this is what a godly lover of the Lord Jesus Christ looks like. It looks like obedience, and and here's the shape that obedience takes. Yes, that is absolutely necessary for your sanctification in the Lord Jesus Christ. But that doesn't save you. It is an overflow of your life. It is an overflow of your faith. It is an outworking of your faith in Jesus Christ and your confidence in Him alone. Can you count? What do you count as loss and gain when it comes to your standing with God? What do you count as loss or gain when it comes to knowing Christ. Do you know about Him? Or do you know Him as Savior and Lord? Have you put your faith in Christ? I'm so glad. Salvation doesn't depend on our efforts, but only on faith in Christ. And it's such an incredibly 
good thing. It's such incredible good news that even though none of us are good enough, as God's Word makes clear, and all of us fall short, as God's Word makes clear, we fall short of His standard of righteousness. That Jesus Christ accomplished for us on the cross what we cannot accomplish on our own. Praise God. How gracious of God to give us Christ. Salvation is available to sinners of every kind by simply placing your faith in Jesus Christ alone and how critical it is for us all, for us all, that we're certain we know Christ Jesus our Lord and that we learn to count everything apart from Christ as rubbish that we may gain Christ. Christ.